0: Good morning. Welcome to church, everybody. If you're new to City Church, my name is Justin. you happy to be here today? Good, I am too. Welcome to City Church and uh, grateful that you're with us today. City Church is one church in five locations. Really excited about all that's going on right now in our church community. Uh, Just had campus elders join us in New Haven and in Bridgeport in the last couple weeks. And then Middletown Campus... Hartford campus and North Haven campus all go from one service to two services next Sunday. That's crazy. So thank you, Jesus, for that. So that means we're, we have nine gatherings every Sunday morning all across this state. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Jesus, right? Incredible. Just really grateful for that. If you're new to the church or uh, just haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we've been in a teaching series looking at the parables of Jesus, the most really famous stories ever told. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. So if you're new to the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew written by one of Jesus' early followers. And he records this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, specifically Peter initiates the conversation in Matthew 18 verse Twenty-one. Then Peter came up and said to him, that's Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many of seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Here's the story. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had that payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. This is God's word. Would you bow your head and pray with me today and open up our hearts to God? God, I thank you for every single person in the room today. God, every story, every circumstance, every situation, we come to you humble today, asking to hear from your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name that you'd penetrate all of our distractions and that your word would speak straight to my heart today. Change us and make us more like you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's a big word, right? Forgiveness comes with a host of emotions. Think about your life and that word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Who in your life has been the hardest person to forgive? Consider that for a moment. Maybe a spouse, loved one, an ex. Maybe a family member, mom or a dad. Who has been the hardest person in your life to forgive? Who have you had to ask for? for forgiveness of? Is there anyone in your life that you are not at peace with right now? These are hard questions, right? Things that we don't like to think about. I have found that life, and I'm sure you've discovered the same thing, is full of opportunities to take an offense, is it not? Full of opportunities. There is no lack of opportunity to take an offense. There are little things that happen, and then there are big things that happen. And there are so many opportunities in this life to be offended. Think about your job. If You have a job, you're working somewhere, and there's always that guy at the job that isn't really pulling his weight or pulling her weight, right? And so you end up having to pick up the slack for them, and they get you in trouble because you've got to do some presentation, but they didn't do their work very good. And so now you've got to present material that's not fully done because of them, and it makes you look bad. And there's a bitterness that starts to grow in your heart towards that person. You're like, my goodness, why am I having to do your work, right? It's easy to take offense in a circumstance like that. Or you think about you're driving down the highway and you've got somewhere to be because you have places to go because you're an important individual. And there's someone in the left lane with their blinker on turning left into nothing on the highway. And they're going 45 miles an hour and you're losing your mind behind them. And you drive past them eventually like this. Alright? Or that friend or that relative who wants to tell you all about how to do love life, right? So they've got, they've got all that advice for you, but their life's a mess. But they do feel like it's their job to instruct you about how you should do this and that. And you're like, oh my goodness, just please stop texting me, right? In my neighborhood, and some people take this the wrong way, so God bless all the creatures that you made, all right? In my neighborhood, there is one particular home where the woman there has like 75 cats, Okay? Lord bless her, got no problem with that. I only have a problem when they wander into my yard, right? And so the cats wander into my yard pretty frequently, and, uh, and after a while, one of the cats decided that, um, that the sandbox I have for my kids looks like a very large and luxurious litter box to them, right? So they made it their habit to urinate in my sandbox, in Jesus' name, right? And now my kids won't play in the sandbox because it stinks like cat pee, right? So I got my pellet gun, I shot the cat. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I forgave, right? I forgave. I got no problem with cats. Bless the cats, Lord. But then there's big things, all right? There's big things in your life. Think about the big things in your life, okay? There are things like, you know, you start a business with a friend and that friend bails on you and leaves you holding the business together. And it's like, are you serious? You get blamed for something at work that wasn't even your fault and it might cost you your job. You have a close friend, but that friend changes and they leave you and there's no longer a close friendship. Or maybe the most difficult, one of the more painful moments in life is someone you love deeply is not true to you. They were unfaithful. They break your trust. They break your heart big things. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were lied to. I can guarantee you that if you looked at the last five days, you would find a host of little things that can cause an offense. And if you looked at your last five years, you would find at least one, but oftentimes three, four, five big things that could cause an offense. What do we do with the host of offenses that our lives seem to produce? Jesus gives us a one-word answer. Forgive. Forgive. Turn to the person next to you and say, easier said than done. Easier said than done, right? Forgive. And as soon as we hear that word forgive, we start attaching our definition to forgive, right? And so some of us, you're hearing, you go, that's fine. I'll forgive. I never want to see them again. I never want to talk to them again. I never want to hear from them again. But they're forgiven. It's like don't know I'm not sure or some of them are like that's fine I'll forgive and I will see them again but every time they take just the smallest step in the wrong direction I'm gonna remind them about our our history I'm gonna say you oh oh, you again I knew it you always do that right let me just remind you about two years ago let me just remind you about six months ago I can't believe you did it again but I forgive you Some of us, you're here and you're like, Justin, you don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she did to me. I can't forgive. It's a nice idea. It's a noble thought. I can't forgive. I can't. What does it really mean to forgive? I want to turn to an old Puritan preacher by the name of Thomas Watson. He put together for us a definition of forgiveness Based out of the Bible. Okay, and I want to read it to you, it'll be on the screen, and there'll be little scripture quotations next to it because every one of these phrases comes out of a command from Scripture. So he says that forgiveness is this according to Scripture. It is when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well of them, grieve at their calamities. Pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. So I made a little acronym for you. You can jot it down on a piece of paper or write in your phone. I encourage you, this is a biblical definition of forgiveness that you can remember. The first is I forsake. Revenge, because that started with F. Forsake revenge. I spent a long time on this stuff. Now, what does it mean to forsake revenge? It means I am not going to try to get back at you, all right? I might think that I have the right to, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to forsake revenge. I'm going to only wish them well. This is an issue of your heart, where you say, you know what? I don't want your house to burn down, your dog to die, and your car to crash. I want good for you. I only wish them well. I respond to evil with good, though they may lie about me, though they may tell the kids something that's not true. I am not going to respond. That was for somebody, by the way. I'm not going to respond back with evil. I'm going to only respond with good. I'm going to grieve over their troubles. Now, this means you actually care. I'm going to actually be grieved when hard times come for them. It's not like, oh, too bad, lost your job, sucker. Like, I'm going to actually grieve. I'm going to be upset. I'm going to intercede for their welfare. This means I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray that God is for them, that he heals them, that he restores them, and that he favors them. I'm going to value reconciliation and seek it. That means as far as it is up to me, I'm going to seek to have an open heart and an open hand towards them. And then I'm going to extend help if they're in distress. Now, this is an incredible, challenging definition of forgiveness. Now, I want to just mention here what forgiveness is not, so that we're not deceived about true forgiveness. Forgiveness is not putting yourself in the position to be hurt again and again and again and again. Forgiveness is not instant trust if trust has been broken, okay? You can forgive and still withhold full trust from someone. Forgiveness is not the absence of anger if somebody sins against you. There is such thing as a righteous anger. And anger, that comes from righteousness, but it does not respond sinfully. And forgiveness is not the absence of consequences, okay? Actions do have consequences, and various consequences might be applied. But you can still fully forgive someone even though consequences must be applied to the circumstance. So forgiveness, functionally, is to release my right to hold an offense towards you. That's what forgiveness is. Now, the rabbis in the days of Jesus taught that a person must forgive someone that's offended them three times. Okay? Three times. Three strikes, you're out. Fourth time, do whatever you want. But the three times, you gotta forgive them. So Peter comes to Jesus in this text, and he says, Jesus, I know you're more spiritual than the rabbis, so how many times should I forgive my brother? Theologians wonder if he was actually talking about his brother, Andrew, who was one of the other disciples. Maybe he was driving them nuts, and he's like, maybe Andrew was there. And he's like, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive this jamoke? Like, how many times do I have to do this, Jesus? You know, like, what's the plan here? And so he says, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times, because I know that you're more spiritual than the rabbis. So is it seven times? And Jesus' answer blows them away. He says, no, 77. 77? I mean, I can't even keep track of that, right? Right. That's the point. Never run out of forgiveness. Now, hold on a second. The first question is, what would motivate someone to actually obey this command? What could be so compelling that I would want to do this? Somebody's hurt me once, they've hurt me twice, they've hurt me three times. Now I'm not putting myself in a place to be hurt, but they're still hurting me. And so I've been hurt so many times by then. They've lied to me, they've deceived me. I want to just close the door, I want to shut them off, I want to wish that they burn, and I want to move on. Why would I still forgive them in my heart? What would motivate a person to do this? And the second question I have is, if I was motivated to do this, how in the world could I actually do it, right? Right? Like, it's not like I can flip a switch and just say, I magically forgive you. Like, my heart needs to change towards you, and I can't fix my heart. So how do I forgive? Well, Jesus answers both of those questions in this little story. Let's look at it together. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, I'm glad you came today. You needed to hear this. <laughs> Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wish to settle accounts with his servants. So the first thing we've got to establish that in the story, it's an, it's an, an analogy, God is the king and we are the servants, right? That's the picture here. And it tells us that he's gonna settle all the accounts, and that's important. Nobody gets away. There will be a day of accounting. We spoke of that last week. You will die and you will stand before God and be judged. Verse 24. When he began to settle, One was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children, and all that he had, that payment would be made. Now, we hear that today, and it's like, whoa, that was the law of the land in the days of Jesus. You couldn't pay your debts, you were sold, and so was your family. It was a big deal, okay? Now, the debt that this man owes, it's said that it's 10,000 talents. Remember last week, if you were here, that a talent is a unit of money. It's worth about 20 years' wages, approximately $600,000 in our common uh, you know accounting six hundred thousand this means if you do the math, this man owed ten thousand talents. this means that he had accrued a debt of six ready billion dollars six billion now I know you 've got a couple of credit cards, all right, and you 've been a little irresponsible, that old navy one that stayed under your bed for three months that you forgot about, and all the other ones, and you know that marshall 's card or whatever it was and you're like, are you serious i can 't even believe that still exists, yeah, so you 've got some debt maybe. Six billion though? I mean, what do you have to do at Foxwoods Casino to get six billion dollars in debt? I mean, is that even possible? It would be a challenge for someone to get six billion dollars in debt. I mean, an actual, if you spent your life just trying to accrue debt, that would be hard, right? Six billion dollars, and my question is, who is this guy in the story? Who is a guy that would accrue such a massive debt towards his master. Now, we're told that the master of the story is God and the servant, it says this at the end. It says so also my father will do to every one of you. In other words, Jesus is saying don't misunderstand. The master in the story is God and the servant with the 6 billion dollar debt is you. And immediately we go, him? Not me. I've been a pretty good person, actually. I might have a thousand dollar debt towards God. I might have a ten thousand dollar debt. No, of course, we're not speaking in money. We're speaking spiritually. It's an illustration, right? I might have a spiritual thousand dollar debt, maybe even a million dollar debt, but Justin, I don't have a six billion dollar debt towards God. Like, I haven't been that stupid. I haven't been that bad. I haven't killed anyone. By my calculations, I'm doing okay, all right? I've been some issues, I understand that, but generally, pretty good, pretty good. Jesus says to you today, you know what, you have miscalculated. You've miscalculated the information you're using to do your calculations is flawed. You are not calculating correctly, so let me clarify your perspective for you. First of all, you must understand that God is not like you. He is not just a little bit sinful. He's not just a little bit impure. He is perfectly, 100%, absolutely holy. There is no impurity in Him. He is separate from all evil. He is altogether other. He is just. He is good. He is right. He is pure. And He is perfect in all of those ways, okay? God is not... Anything like you in that area, he is 100 percent absolutely blameless. Everything he does, everything he thinks, everything he says is good. Scottish theologian uh, Sinclair Ferguson said this about God. He said, God's holiness means that he is separate from sin, but holiness in God also means wholeness. God's holiness is his godness. It is his being God in all that it means to be him, for him to be God. To meet God in his holiness, therefore, is to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God, not man. Now this is important for a lot of reasons. For me, it's important because it shows me that this is clearly, the God of the Bible is clearly not invented by human beings. Because human beings would never invent a holy God that is so holy. Human beings invent gods that are imperfect like us, but this God is absolutely blameless and holy in every single way. That's the God of the Bible, and no man has ever invented a God like that. Now, because he is so perfectly holy, we have to understand that he is required by his own nature to keep a perfect account of everything unholy. Alright, so Revelation 20 tells us that God remembers every one of your deeds. You might be 16 years old, you might be 64. It says that he remembers every single deed and writes it down. Every single deed. Now that's pretty terrifying, (laughs) right? But he doesn't just remember your deeds, he also remembers your words. He remembers every single word you've ever said. Think about that. The the thing you said to your wife when you were screaming and slamming the door. The thing that you said to your son that made him melt. The thing that you said to that kid on that team because he bumped into your kid during the game. All the different things you said to all the different people at work when no one else is looking. You said, listen, between you and me, let me just tell you, he's heard every single thing. Every single thing. In Matthew chapter 12, we're told this. He says, but I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. This is the God of the Bible. Every empty word. Every empty word. And he hasn't just heard your words. He's also heard your He's heard your thoughts. Psalm 139 says it like this. You know, when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You're noticing now that your calculations might be slightly off. He has calculated every single selfish thought you've ever had. He has remembered every lustful thought. He has remembered every single thought. And he doesn't just know your thoughts. He also knows your intentions. In fact, he knows them better than you know them. There is somewhere in heaven, just like you've seen the national debt, that is tick, 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 that is constantly ticking up even as you're thinking something offensive about me right now. He is constantly, constantly recording every single nuance of your sin. He must because he's perfectly holy. That means that every word you spoke, every website you visited, every flirtation with that person, every craving for approval, every obsession with your appearance, your debt is massive. See, what Jesus wants us to see here is that we often think in our own calculations that the crimes committed against us, don't miss this, the crimes committed against us are far greater than the crimes we've committed against God. And God says, no, mm -mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. You owe more than you realize. You owe more than you realize. This is the first stunning revelation that comes out of this Story, You owe far more than you realize. That's not a very comforting thought. But that's where he begins. He says, you're the man with the $6 billion debt before God. And this is interesting because I think that if we're honest, and we slow down for a minute, and we consider this, we calm our spirits down, we stop defending ourselves just for a moment, we're masters at that. I think if we slow down, Every person that can hear me right now, if you're honest, you know that's true. There's something inside your heart, since as long back as you can remember, that tells you that you've got a debt before God. There's a cloud on the human conscience. There's a drag on the soul. Psychologists call this the spotlight effect. The spotlight effect, according to psychologists, is the fact that every time I walk out with a stain on my shirt, I think everyone's looking at the stain on my shirt. I think everyone notices the stain on my shirt. I'm going, oh, my God, there's a stain on my shirt. Nobody else even cares about the stain on your shirt, but you're obsessed with the fact that I can't believe everybody's looking at my stain. I've got a zit. Everybody's looking at my zit. Oh, don't look at my zit. Uh, He noticed the zit. He's staring at the zit right now. I know it's true. That's the spotlight effect. And you think that way because there is a stain. It's not on your shirt, though. It's on your soul. I don't know if you remember high school English when you had to read Macbeth. Like, I didn't read that. (laughs) Lady Macbeth plots the assassination of the king. And then afterwards, she starts to sleepwalk and she is plagued by this guilt that there is blood on her hands and she can't wash it off, and she tries a thousand things, and she says, this spot, I can't get it out. I can't get the blood off my hands. There is something inside the human conscience that knows that they are guilty before God, and there doesn't seem to be anything strong enough to really relieve our conscience. See, we think that our greatest need in life is the right job, or the right spouse, or the right house, or the right location, the right city. We think that's my greatest need. If I pass out a piece of paper and said, write down your greatest need, most of us would say, my greatest need in life is da, da, da. And Jesus in the story says, stop, wrong. Your greatest need is to be fully, forever forgiven by God, and to know it in your soul that you are in fact forgiven. That's your greatest need. I wonder if you know that. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Somebody say everything. Really? Everything? You think so? Because one talent was 20 years wages. He owed 10,000 talents, which means that if he paid his master every dollar he made, it would take him 200,000 years to pay off his debt. Now, he might take vitamins and exercise every day. I don't think he's going to make it that long. I don't think he has 200,000 years to pay off his debt. Not going to happen. So what I'm saying today is this man's claim that he's going to pay him back everything looked completely ridiculous to the master. I mean, here's the master, knowing that this man owes him $6 billion, like, just give me a little more time. I'm really going to figure this one out. It's like, no, you're not you're not going to figure this one out. You're never going to collect enough money to pay off this debt. If you worked 200,000 years, lived on ramen noodles, never paid a penny for anything in life, you still would not have quite enough to pay me off because the interest of the amount that you lost. No, you're never going to pay me back. Your attempts to pay me look foolish. And God would say to you, so do your attempts to pay him back. See, you've been working off this idea. Far too often, if I'm just a good person, if I just accrue enough blessing before God, if I help enough old ladies across the street, if I give a couple bucks in the offering, if I, if I come to church every week, if I do enough good things, God's going to start liking me. I'm light a few candles. He's going to pay me back. And Jesus says to you today, your futile attempts will never get you right with me. That's not how this is going to work. Thank God there's a verse 27 in the story. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. That word pity, it's, it's often translated compassion. It means to be moved from your bowels, to be moved in your inner self. The father of the prodigal son, it's the same word that's described in, when he sees his son far away, and he's moved with compassion and runs to him. In this text, Jesus is describing the very heart of God. And he's saying when God sees a person bound in debt with no options before him, he is moved with compassion and he comes and he absorbs the debt and he says, you're forgiven, I release you. Now being a just and holy God, there must be penalties paid for that debt. So who's going to pay the debt of this servant? If he's just going to forgive him, God cannot in his justice just say, it's forgiven, forgiven move on. No, no, no. It has to be paid from someone somewhere. So who is going to pay the debt? It's inferred in the story that the king himself absorbs the debt from his own treasury. In other ways he takes, I'm going to take a massive amount of my wealth and I am going to put it towards all the debts that you owe me so that they can be dissolved and I am going to release you free and clear of that debt. The cost to the king would have been massive. And God wants us to see this as a picture of what he did on the cross, that he gave his treasure to pay my debt. Look at how Colossians puts it. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, he, that's Jesus, forgave. What's the next word? What? All? Let that three-letter word surround you just for a minute. Like my debts ten years from now? Like the things I did that nobody knows about? Like the sins I committed just yesterday? All our sins. He forgave us. How'd he do it? He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In other words, he said, my son is the greatest treasure I have. I'm going to spend my treasure out of my treasury so that it can replace and pay for your debt that you do not deserve to be forgiven of. That's what I'm going to do. See, he wants you to know in the text that you owe more than you realize and you have been given more than you deserve. Far more. Far more than you deserve. See, what is Jesus doing through this story? He is outlining for us a new perspective. And these two truths, by the way, form a different way of looking at life. They form what I would call the framework for a whole or healthy person. In fact, it is the only psychological framework that will ever bring pure, true, vibrant health to the human psyche. Because the first revelation that I owe far more than I realize crushes you. It humbles you. It kills your pride. It destroys. It's a mortal blow to your self-esteem. I owe God six billion dollars in debt. I am spiritually bankrupt before my creator. If this becomes real to you, it crushes you down and shrinks you to your proper size. But then the second revelation says that you yes, owe more than you ever could pay. And at the exact same time, you are loved more than you ever deserve. You stood before the king. You heard his voice. And if he says you're forgiven, if he says you're right with him, if he says you're cleansed, it doesn't matter what your boss says. It doesn't matter what your brother says. It doesn't matter what your spouse says. It doesn't matter what your mom says. It doesn't matter what your dad says. You're free. You're free. And that produces confidence. It produces assurance. It produces boldness. See, here we find the framework for a healthy mind. I am debt ridden before God far more than I deserve ever to be forgiven and yet he has shown me compassion and washed me and cleansed me and so I am both humble and confident I am both broken and made whole this is the healthy soul see religion alone will just tell you do this do this do this do this and you won't be able to do it you'll live a life of shame or you will be able to do it you'll live a life of pride self help We'll just tell you, you're a wonderful person. You're your best you. You're a great individual, but you're not. You're jacked up. And it doesn't help you to lie to yourself about how awesome you are. You need grace. The power of the gospel both humbles you and exalts you, and it makes you whole on the inside. It makes you whole on the inside. Story's not over, though. Verse 28, take a look with me. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe me. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me. I will pay you. That sounds familiar, right? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and they reported this to their master, what had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Look at verse 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, this is the most important phrase in the text, as I had mercy on you. First, let's understand how much this other guy owed him. It wasn't 50 bucks, okay? According to the Times, 100 denarii was worth about $12,000, $12,000. So he has a friend that owes him 12 grand. Now, I don't know about you, it's easy to just be like, man, don't worry about that 25 bucks, it's good, don't even worry about it. But if it's like, hey, I, I let you borrow $12,000, <laughs> When were you going to pay me back? Oh, man, it's coming real soon. Oh, I just had some things come up with my car. It's coming real soon. Okay, like real soon, like when? Right? Like this week? Like next week? Right? Because I need that. I can't just be giving you $12,000. I need, I need you to heh, pay me back. I need you to pay me back. Right? When you pay me back? Finally, this guy just loses it. He starts choking me, throws him in jail. He says, this guy stole from me. He, he hasn't paid me back. $12,000 is a big deal, but the master here is saying, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I forgave you six billion dollars in debt. And then he says this little phrase that is so important. He says, You should have had mercy as I had mercy on you. This is important. Don't miss this. As I had mercy on you. In other words, he is fundamentally shifting and redirecting the core motivation of forgiveness. See, forgiveness in our minds. Is distributed based upon the person's worth, the person's worthiness, have they truly been sorry, how do I feel right now, we go through all these different things, how have you made me feel, I suppose I'll forgive you, and he says no, 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 when you want to deal with an offense, and you're considering offering forgiveness, don't look at the person, and don't look at the problem, look somewhere else. said, but look, they did to me. They lied to me. They stole. They they stole. (laughs) But I gotta relive this. I have to get justice. I have to deal with this. Don't. And he says this forgive according to what you have received, not according to what they deserve. Let me give you, this is huge. Let me give you a new motivation for forgiveness. And by the way, you might be here today and say, I don't have an offense against anybody right now. This is huge for your life because he's not just teaching you how to forgive, he's teaching you how to live. He's saying, don't look at the problem and determine if they're worthy. Look at the cross and consider if you were worthy. That's what I want you to do. And if you will do that, you will find that you have the capacity to be gracious and to forgive. Look how the story ends. Stay with it. Look how the story ends, verse 34. It says this, In an anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Literally, that word jailers should be translated torturers. That's the original Greek, okay? He was delivered to the torturers. Okay, what is Jesus trying to tell us here? He's telling us that a man has been forgiven a great debt like you and I have before God, and yet he was unwilling to forgive his brother of a debt that was much smaller, right? And so because he was unwilling to forgive his brother, the master says this man must be delivered over to the torturers. Well, what does that mean? It has two implications. The first is this, that if you are going to hold on to a grudge or an offense, maybe it's a small one, maybe Maybe it's a big one. Maybe it's a cat in your yard, or maybe it's a, an abuse in your soul. Whatever it might be, if you are going to hold on to offense, it is going to torture you. It's going to torture you day in, day out. You're going to relive it, and it's going to torture you. One author, Anne Lamont, said this. Forgiveness is drinking rat poison and hoping the other person dies. It's going to kill you. That's what unforgiveness does. Studies have shown that unforgiveness, if you harbor it in your heart, increases your level of stress, increases your level of depression, increases your propensity towards physical sickness, increases your blood pressure, and increases your likelihood towards substance abuse. It's killing you. It's killing you. But that's not the only implication here. There's a greater implication in the text. And the greater implication is this. If you are unwilling to forgive, you don't know Jesus. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying that you earn God's love by forgiving others. No, 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 no. Salvation is by grace. You get it for free, you're forgiven. But when you open your heart to Christ and you're humbled by seeing your debt of sin, and you're exalted in his presence by receiving his grace, it penetrates your heart, and salvation on the inside will always give you the capacity towards grace on the outside. In other words, an unforgiving heart reveals an unforgiven heart. An unforgiving heart reveals an unforgiving given heart. In other words, when I accept the grace of Jesus, I forever forfeit my right to hold an offense towards my brother. Think about that. When I accept the grace of Jesus, if I take his grace into my hands, I must put down out of my hands my right to hold an offense. I've got to forfeit that right if I am to receive His grace, period. And this is the point of the whole story. This is the point of the whole story. That grace changes me. It changes me. It changes me on the inside. Come on, stay with us today. Grace changes me on the inside. I go from a person that sees God as against me to realizing that God is for me. I go from a person that is insecure in my identity to knowing that I am a son or a daughter of the King himself, that I've been received and forgiven and cleansed and accepted. Grace changes the way I see myself. It changes the way I see others. It changes what I see is owed to me. It changes what will annoy me. It changes what bothers me. It's like you took the margins of your life, and because you've been given so much, it enables you to receive far more. See, if you have millions of dollars in the bank, then you're not going to stress about a $100 loss. But if you see your life is so close, so tight, all the margins of your life are so close, you say, oh, no, 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 no. You can't say that about me. Oh, I'm so offended by that. Oh, I'm so bothered by that. You're quick to be offended because you've not experienced grace. But when grace gets on the inside and you see how much he loves you and you see how much he's forgiven you and you see how much he's given you, now it expands your life. It expands your life. It expands your life so you start to live differently. This church is a a blueprint for a new humanity, a different way of looking at life where forgiveness is not something you do. Forgiveness is someone you are, a life that is whole, a life that is healed, a life that in the depths of who you are is not keeping score. You're not clinging to a debt. You're not wagging your fist at someone. You're not insecure, but you're free because you know that you're loved so you can live an open and spacious life. This is what God invites you into. When's the last time you held a grudge? When's the last time you clung to an offense? Maybe it was a little thing. That guy at work you're keeping score. Or maybe it was a big thing. That person who lied to you. It's eating you up inside. When you start to see the cross, the little things don't unravel you. And the big things You turn them back over to Jesus. Question for you today. What holds you back? What holds you back from a wide life like this? What holds you back? I don't know your story. I don't know the details and the specifics of the offenses of your life. I'm sure you got a list. I'm sure you got a long list. You probably had all sorts of people hurt you. All sorts of different situations in your life. I'm sure you've got a good reason to hold on to all kinds of things. Justin, he lied to me. Broke my heart. They weren't faithful. I was abused. Why can't I seem to forgive them? Well, maybe you think that they need to earn it. I got a question for you. Did you earn it before Jesus? Because if you earned your salvation, then you don't have salvation at all. It can only be received as a free gift. And some of us would say, well, I'm afraid to lose my leverage. (laughs) You know, if I can't hold that over their head, I don't know what to do. And God would say to you today, do you not realize that I have leverage over you? That the leverage you hold over their head far higher, I have leverage. And I say, forgive them. Forgive them for the sake of the cross. Not because they deserve it, but because you did not deserve it. And I gave you eternal life. Forgive them and trust me with justice. Trust me with vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine. No one's getting away with anything. You trust me and you let it go. Some of us, you're here today and you say, Justin, I just can't forgive because my entire adult life, I've been the victim. I always have a reason for why someone else has hurt me and my victim thinking is like a blanket around me. It protects me. It's my covering. And if I took off my victim clothes and forgave someone, I feel like I'd be exposed. I don't even know who I'd be. See, sometimes we hold on to the victim card for that very reason. Because deep down, we don't want to deal with our own stuff, we don't want to deal with our own sin. Jesus would say to you today, forgive, and I'll give you the robe of righteousness. I'll cover you in my own robe. And you'll be whole. But you know, as I was praying about this, you know what I think the biggest reason we struggle with forgiveness is? I think we struggle with forgiveness because we have not deeply internalized the simple truth that God has forgiven you. You're still trying to earn it. And that grace Hasn't changed you. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great are his mercy and loving kindness towards you who reverently and worshipfully fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Why don't you let him love you the way he really does and you'll find that the margins of your life expand and you can open your hand and love someone else the way they don't deserve it. Just you stand to your feet with me today. Right now God invites you into a moment of transformation. All right? A moment of transformation. I don't know your story, but today, right here, right now, it's a moment of transformation. God wants to have an encounter with you. He wants to show you the love he has for you. He wants to show you the debt you owe him. He's recorded every word, every intention, every thought, every secret moment. He sees them all, and in the midst of that, his accounting is perfect. He looks at you, And says, I love you so much, you were worth the death of my son. I love you so much that I will absorb your debt myself. You're free. You can go. Be forgiven. And if you could catch a glimpse of that today, you could experience the capacity to forgive anyone of anything would you seek God with me right now go ahead and bow your head open up your heart oh Jesus we gaze upon the cross right now would you help us see would you open our eyes would you tear away the veil reveal to us our own debt reveal to us your love Change us right now, God. We turn our eyes.